Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. How are you doing today? I am doing swell, actually. Awesome. Yeah. We're starting to get some spring weather here in sunny Seattle, Washington. How are things in your neck of the woods? Well, we're pretty snowy here. I had a friend send me a picture of her cup of coffee on the deck with some sun shining through. She's over on the peninsula and she said, first cup of coffee on the deck 2021. I sent her back our Adirondack chairs covered in snow. Well, I hope you get beautiful, sunny spring weather soon. You know, I don't mind the snow so much, but I am kind of ready for the spring. There's so much fun stuff to talk about in the spring. And today we promised to talk about potatoes. And last week when we were introducing the potato episode, you'd mentioned that the potato has literally kept civilizations alive. It's also responsible for the biggest decline in one country's population. But before we get into the less than happy story about the potato, why don't you start us off by telling us where this amazing vegetables originated? Happy to do so. So just to kind of make sure we're clear on what we're talking about, I'm going to tell you about what potatoes are and what they are not. So potatoes that we're talking about today are from the nightshade family, specifically Solanum tuberosum. These potatoes are really rich in complex carbohydrates, vitamin C, potassium, magnesium, niacin, and thiamine. What we're not talking about today are sweet potatoes and yams because they're actually not from the same family as potatoes, although they are also tubers. We'll talk about sweet potatoes and yams some other time. To date, there are easily 4,000 varieties of potatoes to choose from, but not all potatoes are actually created equal. So there are some potatoes that are particularly starchy, like Idaho russets, These are the ones that get really fluffy when you cook them, and they make them really well suited for things like baking, mashing, or frying. So think baked potato, mashed potatoes, french fries, right? The Burbank russet is that potato that is most commonly used by fast food chains to make french fries. On the other hand, waxy potatoes have firmer flesh, and that holds its shape when you're cooking them. That makes them really well suited for like roasting and boiling. So think potato salad, scallop potatoes, stewed potatoes. Red Norlin potatoes are pretty common at markets, and they're a pretty good example of what a waxy potato is like. There's all-purpose potatoes that have fairly equal balances of starch, sugar, and moisture, making them pretty versatile for any dish you can think of. My personal favorite is the Yukon Gold Potato because they maintain the firmness after roasting, and that's my favorite way to prepare them. Then their skins aren't too tough, so you can like you don't have to peel them to put them in dishes. And they have a really awesome, slightly sweet, buttery flavor. Another popular all-purpose potato, and maybe its popularity is due to its unusually vibrant hue, are the blue and purple potatoes like Adirondack Blues. And their color is completely natural. It comes from anthocyanins, which also makes this variety really high in antioxidants. 
And then the other potato I really like are new potatoes. And these are young white potatoes, typically harvested between April and July. And because they are younger, they tend to be more tender and less starchy. And this is the potato that I really associate as being roasted and served with Easter dinner. So potato history. There's evidence of edible wild potatoes that dates back to 11,000 BC. That's a really long time ago, right? Long time ago. Those are found in south of Chile. So high mountainous regions are actually a really hardy high altitude tuber, particularly with signs of cultivation appearing in 5000 BC. And then humans figured out that they were edible. And not only did they start eating them, but then they started cultivating them. So this is that transition between like the hunter gatherer to the farmer kind of model of food growing. The wild varieties are astonishingly divergent in their colors, shapes, sizes, flavors, and are still really eaten today. According to the Oxford Companion to Food, Europeans encountered the potato in 1537 when Spanish forces led by Jimenez de Quesada entered a village in what is now called Venezuela and found baskets of food containing maize, beans, and something that they called truffles, but were actually potatoes. And potatoes were then introduced to Spain in 1550, but just did not actually acclimate well to the difference in altitude between Spain and South America. It's not clear how potatoes made their way to England, although it is attributed to Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh, who honestly may have pirated them from a Spanish vessel. It seems acceptable to say, though, that they arrived in the British Isles sometime in the 1590s. They weren't really popular, again, considered lower peasant food, which has been typical of a lot of the other stuff that we've been talking about (laughs) on the show so far. But the story goes that British Protestants wouldn't plant them because potatoes are not specifically mentioned in the Bible but that Catholics, particularly those in Ireland, decided that they would be okay as long as the seed potatoes were sprinkled with holy water and planted on Good Friday, which is the Friday preceding Easter Sunday. This year, Good Friday falls on April 2nd, so if you're planning on blessing your seed potatoes with holy water and planting them, that's the day you want to think about. And in a flashback to our aphrodisiac episode, I also want to point out that this vegetable, newly arrived on British shores, had a reputation there for being an aphrodisiac. And this is documented in Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor. And this part comes from Act 5, Scene 5. My dough with the black scut, let the sky rain potatoes, let it thunder to the tune of green sleeves, hail kissing comfits and snow ingros. Let there come a tempest of provocation. I will shelter me there. So potatoes entered French cuisine when army officer Antoine Augustine Parmentier returned home to France after the Seven Years' War. He had been kept prisoner of war in Hamburg and was fed potatoes as part of a prison diet because they were inexpensive to grow. They have plenty of nutrition to keep people alive And he had some ideas about what France could do with potatoes. So when he returned, he went to work influencing the French court of Louis XVI and his queen Marie Antoinette in order to get the royal approval for this new vegetable. And he also created a potato plantation near Paris in order to influence the potatoes popularity with the French people. So the result is that French dishes created with potatoes are known as parmentier. So potatoes parmentier is a nod to our friend Antoine Augustine. 
He had a huge influence on French food, and I really want to come back and talk about him specifically another time because he had a ton of influence regarding bread and flour and the entrenchment of the boulangerie, a place that was specifically meant to serve bread. He seems like a pretty interesting dude, and I want to learn more about him. But all this is leading us up to the piece de resistance, which I believe, Leigh, you're going to tell me about this massive potato event that shaped history. What can you tell me? Well, I'm going to talk about the Great Potato Famine. But before we can understand how the failure of one crop can create the devastation that it did, we have to understand the social structure of early 19th century Ireland. The Acts of Union, which was ratified in 1801, essentially made Ireland a colony of Great Britain. Ironically, this combination that the act ratified of these two nations was called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Part of the governance of the act was that the British government appointed the heads of state of Ireland, the Lord Lieutenant and the Chief Secretary. The Irish people were able to elect representatives to Parliament, but most of the elected representatives were landowners that had British origins. And under penal law, If an Irish resident practiced Catholicism, which was the majority of the population in Ireland, they were not allowed to own land, lease land, vote, or hold elected office. Wow. Yeah. Most of the penal laws were repealed in 1829, so 28 years later, but the impacts of that had already ingrained themselves in Ireland's social structure. Most of the land was still owned by British or Anglo-Irish families. Irish Catholics were forced to work as tenant farmers and pay rent to these landowners, many of whom were absentee and didn't experience any of the effects of the famine or anything that was happening in Ireland even before the famine. As you mentioned, the introduction of the potato has been said to be the responsibility of Sir Walter Raleigh, who was a British explorer, and he apparently brought the potato back from Virginia and planted it in his estate in Cork. There's also an Irish legend that says that ships from the Spanish Armada wrecked off of the coast of Ireland and the infamous tuber washed ashore. And maybe it was a combination of both, like you had mentioned, that they had stolen the tubers from the um, Spanish Armada. That's my bet. Right? But regardless of how the potato was really and truly introduced into Ireland, by the early 1600s, Irish farmers had discovered that potato potatoes produced twice the amount of food on the same amount of land that other crops were planted on. So they started to plant more acreage of potatoes. And by the late 1700s, the potato had acclimated to the Irish climate and the landscape, making it a pretty viable crop to grow. Throughout Ireland, between the 17 and 1800s, a lot of the agricultural lands were being planted with tillage. Lands that had originally been planted with grains were now being moved to crops to feed animals. They were also being planted with flax, and you also had lands being consumed by urban sprawl. So soon farmers were starting to sell their surplus potato crops to these areas that were now deficient in edible crops, or no crops at all in the case of urban areas. Oh, I see. Yeah. By the early 1800s, 30 to 35 percent of the Irish population was dependent on the potato for sustenance. Many of the farming families actually were eating between two to three meals a day that consumed consisted solely of potatoes. 
And last week I had mentioned how much I love the potato. I think it's the most amazing vegetable in the world, but I don't think that I would be happy eating potatoes for every meal. There was a potato executive that did that though. He went 30 days eating nothing but potatoes in order to prove yeah. that nutritionally you could do it. And he did. I, I think at the end of it, I remember him saying that he was excited to to eat something other than potatoes. <laughs> but the reality was that it was completely feasible mm -hmm. for him to survive for however long he did his experiment. Yeah. Part of what you're talking about also has led historians to believe that the population boom in Europe in the 1800s was partly due to the potato because it is such a nutritious vegetable. Mm. If you add milk to your meal of potatoes, mm -hmm. you get enough protein, carbohydrates, minerals, and energy for a really healthy diet. Prior to the potato famine, which ran from 1845 to 1852, Ireland's population was 8.5 million people. It was the most densely populated country in Europe at that time. The potato famine or the great famine or Angorta Moor, which is the Irish word for the potato famine, was caused by an organism called Phytophthora infestans, which means more or less vexing plant destroyer. I want, I want to be called the vexing plant destroyer. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. Okay, I'm sorry. It was believed to have originated in Peru. And it might seem unlikely that a fungus from Peru could spread to Ireland. There's a theory to help explain the route of travel, and it has to do with the guano rush. So bird droppings, or guano, were the most important fertilizer in the 1800s. In order for this guano to get to the locations that it needed to be, there was this increase of traffic between Peru and North Europe. So it's believed that these guano ships carried the Phytophthora infestans, probably, probably first to Antwerp and then through Europe and even into France. There isn't any solid proof of this, and there are other theories as well, but it does give a good explanation as to how this possibly could have been carried from Peru wow. into Europe. However, this vexing plant destroyer landed on the Emerald Isle. Its results were devastating. By the time it reached Ireland, it was estimated that 2.1 million acres of potatoes had been planted, and within two months, this fungus had wiped out between one half and three quarters of a million acres of potato crops. These are the same crops that 30 to 35 percent of the population depended on to live. And before the potato crops would start to recover in 1852, between 1.1 and 1.5 million Irish people either starved, succumbed to diseases that were related to malnutrition, or died from scurvy, dysentery, typhus, cholera, while others suffered blindness from vitamin B deficiencies. And then another 2 million Irish people would emigrate to other countries like America, England, or Australia. And today, Ireland's population is less than it was in 1840. It's an interesting thing to think about. We think about countries' populations increasing oh over goodness. the course of time, but Ireland's population is actually less than it was. What a massive shift and change mm. to an entire country and its culture. Yes. Yeah. The role of the British government during the time that the famine ran its course, whether through their inaction or if it was malicious or if it was just inadequate response, is still debated by historians and politicians. 
But in 1997, then Prime Minister Tony Blair did issue a formal apology to Ireland for the way that the government had handled the crisis. And there is so much more to talk about how it was handled and what was done, what wasn't done from crops that were being exported out of Ireland as people were starving Mm. to death. But that is another episode entirely. Any sense of how they were able to stop that blight? I suspect that what happened is that it literally ran its course and destroyed Mm. all of the potatoes that were planted. This is a fungus that still affects both. Like you said, this is a nightshade family. It affects both tomatoes and potatoes. I knew it was heartbreaking, but like it's really heartbreaking. Some of these people were eating 14 pounds of potatoes a day. That's how many potatoes were being farmed, even by these people that were just subsisting off of the potatoes. So it tells you how prolific this plant can actually be. Yeah, it it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's a hearty little sucker. It is. Until it isn't. <laughs> yeah, until the vexing plant destroyer gets it. I actually managed to find a little bit about heirloom potatoes, particularly in North America, but this relates to the Irish disaster. My source for a lot of what I'm about to talk about is William Woyas Weaver, author of Heirloom Vegetable Gardening, and he has some 40 plus years of experience growing and cooking with heirloom vegetables. So I'm taking him at his word here. All right. <laughs> According to Weaver, potato varieties predating the advent of the blight in the 1840s, basically what we're talking mm-hmm. about, are now to be found only in gene banks or in special botanical collections. 19th century varieties developed in the 1850s and 1860s from Mexican or South American stock represent the oldest sorts presently available to heirloom gardeners. So there was this absolute kind of schism between potato stock pre-blight and post-blight. But it's really kind of a weird, cool story about how potatoes basically made a blight comeback. What horticulturists found is that when potatoes are propagated through cuttings rather than seed planting, each succeeding generation is basically a genetic clone of its parent. So it carries with it all of its inherited strengths and weaknesses of the variety and diseases are therefore also passed down. So basically, if you're replanting cuttings from the same potato over and over again, you're effectively eating an entire kind of colony of the same potato, but you're perpetuating this issue, right? So in 1854, the Florist and Horticultural Journal wrote an editorial on the degeneracy of the potato. And by the way, can we just like salute that (laughs) phrase for a second? The degeneracy of the potato. Okay. In 1854, the Florist and Horticultural Journal editorialized on the degeneracy of the potato and concluded that raising potatoes from tubers was unnatural because it bypassed the seed stage, thus perpetuating weaknesses. This realization brought about the Great Revival, as it was called, where deteriorating potato varieties were crossed with hardier wild varieties from Mexico and South America. In in this experimentation in the 1850s and the 1860s resulted in many of the most popular heirloom potatoes of the 19th century. And one potato especially credited with, quote, shifting potato culture, which is a phrase I never thought I'd say in my life, but I'm super proud to have said it now, (laughs) is the garnet chili introduced by Reverend Chauncey E. Goodrich of Utica, New York in 1853. The story goes that in response to the potato blight of the 1840s, Goodrich's theory was that stock had grown weak through cultivation and selection, and that by reintroducing more vigorous stock from South America, we we would see better, hardier potatoes. So he obtained seed stock from Chile, 
crossed a cultivar called Rough Purple Chili with some unrecorded cultivar and basically developed the 19th century granddaddy potato, the Garnet Chili. Quote, known as a vigorous potato producing large yields of large, round, white, fleshed tubrets of excellent quality. There's a little bit more to the story about the garnet chili that I think is really fun. An amateur gardener named Albert Breezy of Hubberton, Vermont, used that garnet chili as a parent stock to develop the early rose. And the early rose potato became the most widely grown potato in the United States. From here, another horticulturalist noticed that a early rose potato plant growing in his mother's garden had seeded. He took 23 of those seeds and discovered that one of those plants from the seed yielded even larger potatoes. And that plant became the Burbank russet. And now I'm back to where I started with the Burbank russet being the potato variety used most commonly by fast food restaurants to create french fries. Thank you, Reverend. Thanks, Reverend. There are now at least 150 potato varieties planted across North America and Europe that actually trace back to Reverend Goodrich's garnet chili potato. And what I find really exciting is that the potatoes that we eat today are directly due to people who were fighting against blight. That they were trying to find the solution of how we could make these plants stronger and hardier and survive. The genetics of most modern potatoes trace back to the, the garnet chili. Wow. And this is the bright side of like genetic modification, right? We have a lot of news about genetically modified foods. And a lot of folks see that as a very negative, weird Frankenstein kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I get where they're coming from. I really do. But when you think about the things that we've done to protect the foods that help feed an entire country's worth of people. What was it, like 1.5 million people yeah. lost to starvation yeah. in Ireland? Yeah. And not to mention the other folks that had to immigrate. Right. And that's a huge impact, right? Yeah. 28% of New York's population in the late 1800s, early 1900s was Irish who had emigrated. Yeah. When you think about the scale of that tragedy, mm. obviously, is enormous. But then you think about the response to that. And you think about that scale of human innovation. Right. It's pretty cool. It is. It's really cool. Even today, a blight to the extent that happened in Ireland would be devastating. One historian said that if that were to happen in modern times, just in North America, we would lose 40 million people. The scale of what happened in Ireland mm -hmm. during the potato famine is just unthinkable. And the people that we have on the planet today who are of Irish descent are those who managed to survive mm -hmm. either through immigration or they managed to make it. And these are the human events where people's lives are touched by food. It really makes you look at your potato on your plate in a different way. In a very different way. Very different way. I wanted to also touch on a couple of potato recipes. There are literally like millions of them. The culinary life of the potato is mind-bogglingly vast. I think we all pretty much know you can bake it, roast it, stew it, boil it, fry it. They go with any protein, any fat, and a bewildering array of spices. I asked my friends what their favorite potato dishes were, and a lot of them mentioned Colcannon. And Colcannon is an, a dish of Irish origin, basically, very basically, consisting of boiled potatoes mashed with cabbage or kale, flavored with butter, cream, onion, leeks, or shallots. I found this diary entry from October 31st, 1735, by a man traveling in Ireland, but not from Ireland, who described his dinner this way. 
dined at Colonel William Perry and also supped there upon a shoulder of mutton roasted and what they call their coal cannon, which is cabbage, boiled potatoes and parsnips, all of this mixed together. They eat well enough, and this is a dish always had in this kingdom on this night. So remember, October 31st, he's talking about this traditional dish. You know, there are moments in your life where you just got this weird kind of like serendipity. And for me, a lot of stuff that we've been talking about today just lined up all of a sudden. At this point in my research, I'm thinking, oh, I did not know there was a correlation between Colcannon and Halloween. Reading on, I learned that in Ireland, the dish was part of a marriage divination ritual where charms were hidden in dishes of Colcannon. <laughs> and if an unmarried girl were to find one, it meant she'd soon receive a marriage proposal. So now I'm starting to think about Mardi Gras. And king cake and the baby charm or the bean that symbolizes good luck. The world suddenly in that moment felt very small for me mm. because I could see these beautiful threads running between the various dishes that we were eating and why we were eating them. We look for meaning in our lives. I just love this idea that a young maiden is eating a dish of Colcannon and praying that she finds the charm that means that she's going to get a marriage proposal. And that it relates to somebody else, maybe on the other side of the world, who is hoping that they find the bean in the king cake so that they can have good luck for the year mm -hmm. and that they could be king for a day. Back to Colcannon. Colcannon, the dish, basically drifted into England in the 18th century, where it became a high-class dish. And this was done featuring potatoes and Brussels sprouts, flavored with ginger, moistened with milk and butter. And if at this time you're thinking about dishes like champ or bubble and squeak, you're, you're not wrong. Mm -hmm. I just love how these things migrate through the world. A similar example is a family favorite vegetarian curry called aloo gobi. Mm. So delicious. Mm -hmm. Vegetarian curry consisting of potato and cauliflower, but it really showcases fenugreek, turmeric, garlic, ginger, onion, cumin, coriander. And given the potato history that we've talked about so far, you might be thinking potatoes in India. But if you did tune into our curry episode, you might not be as surprised because potatoes made their way to India via the Dutch and English colonists in the 18th century. The potato was eventually adopted by Muslims and Hindus. And by 1830, potatoes were being cultivated in Dehradun, which has conditions not unlike the Chilean mountains where the wild potatoes originated. So the dish itself relates to the Mughal Empire, and we discussed that in the curry episode. If you didn't catch it, go back. You'll love it. The recipe I exclusively use for aloo gobi is from Michael Pendaya's Complete Indian Cookbook, which I love because the cookbook was first my father's and now it's mine, and its pages are stained with splashes of spices and ghee. This dish introduced me to asafoetida powder and flavor combinations that just weren't as common in other foods that I ate at school or at friends' houses. And it's a really exciting way to eat familiar vegetables, potatoes, cauliflower, tomatoes, just in a whole new way. What are your favorite potato dishes like? Oh, I think my first favorite potato dish is a French fry. I cannot turn down a French fry. And then probably lefse, which I mentioned in the New Year's Day and New Year's Eve episode, which is literally a potato tortilla rolled up with butter, which is delicious. Mashed potatoes, mm -hmm. too. Mashed potatoes. And my brother-in-law makes the best mashed potatoes in the whole wide world. Ooh, I'm, I'm tempted to know his secrets. Oh, my gosh. Let me just say, they are not diet food. Good. <laughs> we need less diet food in exactly. the world. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm starving mm. as usual. This potato episode really made me hungry. I have been 
hungry all day long. <laughs> so I'm feeling especially inspired to actually go whip up some potato salad. Ooh. Because I've got some beautiful Yukon Golds that are just waiting for me to do something with them. What are you going to nosh on next? You know, this episode actually has made me very appreciative that I can have a potato anytime I want. I, I think I might have to go with some mashed potatoes. We're actually having mm -hmm. sausages tonight for supper, so we might just oh, do yeah. kind of an American bangers and mash. Yes. Yeah. Sounds amazing. <laughs> but before we <laughs> wet our palates with our wonderful potato delicacies... Yes. What can our listeners expect for next week? Well, in the theme of spring and all the marvelous spring holidays that we have, we are going to dig deep into Nowruz, which is also known as Persian New Year. There are some really marvelous, beautiful traditions associated with this day that we are excited to talk to you about. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it five stars please and one more thing we'll be publishing the as we eat journal a companion publication to the podcast we'll take you behind the scenes dig deeper into food lore and history share recipes and amazing photos and so much more make sure to sign up on the website for updates oh and one more thing we also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs>